Hello and welcome again to this series of CityWire podcasts with River and Mercantile Asset Management. Today I'm joined by Will Locke, who is manager of the River and Mercantile UK Dynamic Equity Fund. And when I say joined, I mean Will and I are actually in the same room in the CityWire London studio. And after many months of Zooming and remote podcasts, it really is a pleasure to do this face-to-face, socially distanced, of course. Life may just be returning to normal, we hope. So welcome, Will, and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's fantastic to be here. So, Will, let's start with your fund and its name. What, as you say, it is a dynamic equity fund, and what does it do? So, uh, from my perspective, uh, the dynamic element of the fund is really... um, it's primarily the fact that it has very few constraints around it. So few constraints around sector um, allocations, um, few constraints around the size of the companies in which we can invest, and few constraints around um, the stocks which we uh, can invest in. So, you know, we're not forced to invest in companies just because they're a large part of the benchmark. Um, And so what that really means is we can be a true stock-picking fund. Uh, We usually hold around 50 Uh, investments and that gives us the ability to have good balance Um, but we can be dynamic in terms of investing real you know proper amounts of capital behind our best ideas so you know two of our largest contributors over the last uh, 12 months but also over the short term have been DFS and Triple Eight they are not large constituents uh, of the benchmark, but we've been able to um, back our conviction with with proper weight. Uh, and your, the, your benchmark is our well. benchmark is the um, uh, is the MSCI uh, UK IMI, uh, and we sit within the um, Investment Association uh, UK All Companies. The the other kind of element which I do you know just think is important in terms of um, being dynamic is how we can apply risk in the portfolio. So um, our philosophy at River and Mercantile. Uh, it's called PVT, and that stands for Potential Valuation and Timing. And one of the elements that we have within it is um, we have these four categories of potential. So growth, quality, recovery, and asset-backed. And at certain times uh, in a market cycle, it pays to take a bit more risk. And we think that we can, you know, we can do that. One of the ways we can do that uh, is by um, uh, having more capital allocated to recovery and asset-backed. And we think that probably is something which differentiates us a little bit at the moment, given um, uh, where the majority of assets uh, have been invested. Great. So it's very much a stock-picking fund and and a go-anywhere fund. But when we were talking in advance of of this meeting, uh, you talked about regime change in financial markets that is happening now. What do you mean by that, and why should investors pay attention to it? Yeah, so this is these are these environments um, uh, that I'm talking about which we have to have the, the context for when we're picking our stocks um, because they can have you know large impacts on asset allocation at a high level and then in terms of the d- uh, the dynamics within equity markets um, so with regime change what are we talking about well what we're really saying is that we think that there is um, a growing body of evidence it's not conclusive yet but it is Um, It is a growing body of evidence uh, that suggests that um, you might have a period of uh, sustained nominal growth, which is higher than we've been used to. And as part of that, uh, we do think that uh, the inflation component could well run at 2% or above for for a long period of time. Uh, And the other element within this um, is that we've got used to, uh, since the 80s and, and Volcker, you know, monetary policy-driven markets. And what we mean there is that 
the, you know, the Fed in particular has had an inflation mandate where at the first signs of overheating, they put the brakes on the economy <coughs> using uh, higher interest rates. The Fed have effectively said, um, we are not going to get in the way of the cycle. We are actually going to let inflation run a little bit hot above our um, previous target of 2%. And what we're just saying as a result is this concept that if you have that environment and you have the huge fiscal support that's coming from governments, you know, really um, not a lot of appetite uh, for the austerity that you saw coming out of the financial crisis, that environment is one in which uh, nominal growth could be higher for longer. Right. And this, this is, of course, against the backdrop of the COVID pandemic, the effect it had on the markets about four, 13 months ago now, and the attempts by governments, particularly in the States, but also in Europe and, and Asia, to backstop what could have been a calamity and just say, we're going to give you as much support as you need. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that is, um, you know, that was the seed of it. Um, but I think it's gone a bit further than that, actually, now. You know, that um, backstopping uh, is now um, something of a political, you know, there is a political element to uh, the fiscal support. So when you look at the comments coming out of um, the states, and I, you know, I, the rest of the world t tends to follow what's happening in the US, so I think it is relevant to keep referring to it. If you look at what Jalen, Janet, Janet Yellen is saying, uh, for example, there is a very explicit aim to use fiscal policy to use higher nominal growth um, to uh, to actually level up some societal imbalances which they feel have come about as a result of these kind of low interest rate uh, environments and low uh, and low growth environment and part of that will also involve <coughs> um, you know investments in areas uh, in the US particularly but I think around the world um, uh, in in kind of productive capacity there's a sense that Productivity uh, in economies has been on a downwards grind for a long time, uh, and this is a once-in-a-generation uh, opportunity to kind of kickstart that uh, that productivity. Okay, so this comes back to you as a stock picker. Uh, you've got this back backdrop. How do you pick companies that can both take advantage of this higher growth, but obviously to some extent they've got to withstand the dangers of higher inflation that that might come? Yeah. I would say that the two kind of key components we are looking for. Um, if, if you are to kind of think about a broad cohort uh, of stocks are um, companies which have pricing power uh, and then we need to think quite a lot about duration um, and maybe if I just spend a little bit of time explaining duration and why it's important here you know duration is how quickly you get paid back by your investment and uh, effectively is you know um, over what time period uh, are the cash flows going to uh, come back to you as an investor Within the equity market, um, clearly, you know, high growth companies are longer duration because a lot of the value kind of sits in the future. And then you have to discount that back to today. That is important um, in the environment that we're talking about, because if you do have higher inflation and then eventually higher interest rates, uh, that, that value, uh, you know, sitting a long time in the future naturally gets eroded uh, today. So there's been a lot of focus on in intangibles, you know, brand power, etc. We actually think that um, in a higher inflationary environment, uh, the value of a tangible asset base gets that much greater because you've got a lot of sunk cost already in the ground, sort of um, actually uh, literally as well as metaphorically. So that ability to harvest cash flow. And a good example of that would be paper and packaging. 
um, where actually we think that the market is still looking back and valuing um, these businesses based on um, previous levels of return on capital, when actually in the next cycle, because of the consolidation, those return on capital will be higher. They also benefit from cyclical tailwinds, um, so a strong economy, you know, more packages um, uh, going out, uh, and also um, some structural tailwinds. So e-commerce, for example, is a big, uh, big beneficiary for that sector, which hasn't been um, present in previous cycles. So is this all a story about cyclical companies now? I think it's definitely um, one of the one of the vectors which we have to you know think about as as being really important uh, in this next cycle. Um, now the the kind of main considerations for us are you know this point I was making earlier about um, since the financial crisis. Uh, investors have typically sort of anticipated the Fed's actions. So anytime you've had um, high lead indicators, uh, actually, as soon as they start rolling over industrials companies, let's say, um, uh, the share prices will will kind of anticipate that and uh, and decline. And what we're saying is actually, if you have a period where nominal growth is sustained for a long period of time, actually, um, the likelihood is that those companies with higher economic sensitivity um, they will be able to beat consensus forecasts and that's what happened really through 2003 to 2007. So the fact that PMIs or ISMs or whatever lead indicator you choose is peaking is less relevant than actually just the level of sustained growth um, because ultimately you know that's what uh, beats investor expectations. So once you've honing down on that is it what's more important is it the valuations of the companies at the prices you can buy or is it more structural growth factors that you're looking for? So I think that any in any cycle, uh, you will always find that there are companies which tap into some structural trend. Um, and it's hugely beneficial as an investor to find those, particularly if you find them at the right price. And I think, um, you know, all I would say is we are always trying to be very disciplined uh, about the price we pay for growth. Uh, so a good example at the moment, we know we we own Aviva um, in the in the portfolio, uh, which is really an industrial software company. Now they've got a huge runway of growth um, for basically digitalization of industrial processes, the sort of um, digitalization which has been happening around the world in sort of various guises for a long period of time, which is still relatively nascent in a few industries. Um, we think they can grow at double digits for a long period of time, um, but we waited for an opportunity to buy it when actually the free cash flow yield was attractive. So we are constantly on um, on the lookout for those. However, the point um, which we are making here is that in this environment, so in the environment we're in today, uh, a recovery environment, a reflationary environment, and then in, if we do move into this sustained um, higher growth environment, actually, um, the scarcity of growth decreases. More companies are able to grow um, their revenues and their earnings at a higher rate. And therefore, this massive premium, which had been attached to the, the fastest growers, should naturally erode. And that, therefore, becomes a bit of a dangerous part of the market to invest in because uh, you come under risk of multiple compression. So there are you know, a few ways that you can lose money in the stock market, 
uh, it's not always because the earnings uh, fall. Okay. So just, I mean, in relation to the UK market, which has had its own dynamics for the last, uh, well, it's getting up to five years, we had the Brexit vote, uh, you know, calamity all round, uh, and, the, and the UK market in general has been lowly valued. I mean, is this healing? Does this give you the opportunity to buy companies at lower valuations, perhaps you would enjoy if you were investing in European or American stocks? Yeah, I mean it's it's um, it's been hard yakka um, being a UK investor to to um, to use a sporting term, um, and there's definitely been it definitely feels like it's been the case that the UK has been a pariah market for a long time, you know, and just as we felt that we'd moved into a period at the end of 2019 with a kind of bit of political stability, perhaps along came. Uh, along came COVID-19 and, um, you know, a perception uh, that, that that wasn't handled particularly well in, in the UK, uh, in the initial phases at least. So there are all these reasons um, that, frankly, uh, global investors have not needed to bother even thinking about UK um, uh, equities. You know, they've gone, they got down to, you know, they're about 4% of the global benchmark today. And one of the reasons we think that any stock picker around the world should be particularly interested in the UK is because um, the dispersion of valuations in the UK is particularly high. It is, um, it is higher than anywhere else uh, in, the, in the world um, on a sector neutral level. So there is generally high dispersion in valuations um, uh, if you're willing to take large sector bets. But in the UK, you don't actually need to be swinging the bat on sectors to find really attractive valuation anomalies. So the gap between the cheapest company uh, and the most expensive company across a broad range of measures in any sector is very high. And that is just a really attractive environment um, to go about your business uh, as, a, as a stock picker, as I say. And what's causing that differential? Is it companies not getting their messages across? Is it just investors not even bothering to have these companies on their radar? Yeah, I, I mean, what we find quite often um, in markets is that stuff happens gradually, then suddenly. Um, I've spoken about it with regard to how people think about um, the ESG uh, characteristics of companies. But I think it's just a, a general point. Uh, you get a drip, drip, drip uh, of more positive news, and then suddenly, um, you know, the UK might be uh, the, the, the market of the day. And one of the reasons why... Uh, that seems more likely today uh, in the environment we've described uh, than it has done uh, for, for quite a long time, is that actually the UK um, does offer a, a number of these companies which have the characteristics which I described earlier. So I spoke about the paper, paper and packaging industry. Um, we think Mondi's a fantastic, um, uh, a fantastic example of that, uh, one of the largest positions in, uh, in the fund. Similarly, the mining companies actually, you know, they do offer you quite good inflation exposure while also um, uh, giving you that kind of cyclical uplift. So the UK, you know, some of the things which perhaps people have said uh, have held the UK back actually make it um, an attractive market because it does have these type of companies. But what I'm saying is that the opportunity is very broad because there's, there is still that scar tissue uh, of all the... Uh, of all the things in the recent past that you described. And there, there are, you think, enough of these companies around in the UK for you to make a, 
you know, a, a selection of 50 to, to, to get, go into your portfolio? Yeah, you know, I, th I think um, we find the UK market to be one which is incredibly deep. So um, a lot of a really, really active, small, uh, smaller companies environment uh, with a huge range of companies which are um, often market leaders in a particular niche. Um, they may be domestic leaders, but they, there's actually a lot of these companies which have um, big international uh, revenue bases. So I think that the criticism of, that the UK has often faced is that it didn't have it, many of the kind of hyper-growth companies, the hyper-growth disruptors that you were seeing in uh, somewhere like uh, the US or Asia. Uh, but certainly we see plenty of opportunity uh, to buy good compounding companies with fantastic, fantastic management teams. So electro-components uh, would be a good example of that. Uh, Kemring, uh, the defense business, has market-leading positions uh, in, uh, in sensors, cyber warfare, for example. But we also have those businesses uh, which we think are sort of unfairly, um, uh, unfairly cheap relative to businesses which have very similar characteristics overseas. So something like Prudential has a fantastic franchise uh, in Asian life insurance. Uh, AIA is a pretty similar business to it, yet um, the valuations that investors put on them are night and day. And these are the sort of opportunities we think uh, you can exploit uh, today. But, you know, you, the UK market is a, um, particularly once you kind of go below, be below the top 20 uh, mega caps, is a fantastic, fantastic environment to be stock picking today. Okay. So what happened last year? I mean, obviously, we had the, the massive shock in February, March, and the markets all went south pretty well together. And then the recovery. How did you tinker with the portfolio uh, to, 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 to position yourself? At the start of March, uh, we'd gone into the year um, actually with a relatively positive view around um, the industrial cycle, for example. You know, the US-China trade war uh, looked like it was, uh, uh, looked like it had been resolved and uh, things were picking up, frankly. And in the UK, a, a number of the d domestic signals were quite positive. Um, as we got to the end of February and into early March, you know, our view on the risk to um, the global economy shifted markedly. Um, you know, frankly, I'm, uh, you know, I owe a lot of gratitude to, to my colleague Dan Hanbury, who was really on top of uh, some of the trends uh, around um, COVID-19 case numbers. Uh, and therefore, we really sh um, pivoted and moved to around two thirds to 70 percent of the portfolio being in more defensive businesses. So we bought um, positions in a couple of pharma businesses, for example, uh, and upweighted those. And although we were late on that, I think it protected us, uh, uh, frankly, uh, in those sort of worst couple of weeks. Uh, the next bit which I described was um, kind of in the middle of the year. Um, this is where we looked at some of the signals coming out of China, particularly, uh, where the industrial complex there had uh, got back to close to full capacity very quickly. Uh, and our work our modeling around a number of the industrial cyclical companies in the UK um, led us to kind of see that their forecasts were um, way too low. The forecasts in the market were way too low. So we acquired things like IMI, Spectris, um, increased positions in Vesuvius, for example. Uh, and those gave us a, a lot of good performance actually through kind of the second half of the year.
I think that the, you know, the probably if I look back with any regret, it's that didn't get um, bullish enough about consumer cyclicals probably towards the back end of the year. Clearly, those those rallied massively uh, on the on the positive vaccine news, and I think that probably the you know, if I'm being honest, the risk reward by that stage uh, had already improved. Great. So, and finally, obviously, it's your fund, so you consider you've got yourself well positioned for where we're heading now. Uh, <laughs> Where would you see the the, the risks of markets and, and to, to to markets in your portfolio coming that everyone should be aware of? Yeah, so if I take um, the portfolio first, um, now if you look at the risk budget of the portfolio, around fifty to sixty percent of it is typically sort of related to single stock risk um, because of the you know fifty stock portfolio relatively concentrated. So. You know, from that perspective, a lot of the the risk that I take is often actually, you know, with a recovery company, for example, are the fundamentals going to turn out to be weaker than I thought? Is it, am I too early? Um, have I got my timing wrong? Um, or actually, is the business just worse than I thought it was when I invested and therefore it's not going to recover? Or on the other side, with a growth or a quality business, you know, more likely to be sort of valuation risk. I've got my kind of perception of, of valuation wrong. Um, uh, but you know, could also be wrong about the fundamentals. So, you know, the, that is probably still the major risk relating to the portfolio at any time. Um, today, you know, how do we think about the tail risks? So, one I mentioned was inflation. Uh, if we call that the right tail risk, um, I do think that that has risen quite a lot uh, today. So most pe- uh, most uh, most central bankers, uh, most people in government are still pretty comfortable that all the disinflationary forces which we've seen over the last you know multi decades are still in place, and that's why they're comfortable um, keeping the taps on fiscally. But they might be wrong about that, um, and you know some of those disinflationary forces, such as demographics, may be turning. I think it, in the right tail scenarios, we're probably okay in relative terms with our positioning because we're thinking about it. Uh, quite a lot and maybe you know we perceive the risk to be higher than the average investor um you know the the left tail if you like is that all this extra spending fails to ignite the nominal growth that we're talking about you end up in a bit of a debt trap um, and in that environment well frankly the same companies you know that have performed well particularly those you know quality growth compounders where growth is scarce um, they do have pricing power um, uh, if yields go down, then valuations get support again uh, for those longer duration assets. They will be the winners again, and you know that is not necessarily uh, the best environment for relative befo- performance uh, for a fund like mine, which is more balanced uh, across a range of, of different earnings drivers. Okay, well, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, will Locke of the River and Mercantile UK Dynamic Equity Fund, thank you for joining us today. It's been most enjoyable. And I hope we'll speak again soon. Thank you very much. Cheers. 